Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel 21, 1-14. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years, so David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you, David asked. They answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter Rizpah, whom, he had, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Mirab, who she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Mahathalite. Why do I always get the ones with all the hard words? Uh, he handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Probably more, more hard names on this. Rizpah, daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or wild animals by night. When David was told what Aya's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went out and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them, and after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Thank you, thank you, Helen. We are continuing. This is third week now in a series called "Reading Between the Lines," and essentially, what we're trying to do this summer is take a look at some of the lesser-known stories in Scripture. And this morning is one of them. Already, we have talked about uh, the daughters of Zelophehad, which probably no one here had really heard much about before. Graham talked to us about them last time. We talked about the feeding of a hundred. Much less impressive than Jesus' miracle feeding 5,000, but still an important story. And this morning, we are going to hear a story that is connected with David, about whom many stories are, are told in the Bible and many stories we're familiar with. But today, he's only a supporting character in, a, in the story of a relatively unknown woman. 
2 Samuel picks up after the death of King Saul. So a little bit of background. Last week we talked about the fact that kings were do, outdoing one another in evil, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. This point in history, kings were changing from one generation to the next, and it was just this downward spiral. Occasionally there'd be a bright spot, but then it was like a, a downward spiral again. And uh, this has happened. But several generations earlier, before Israel ever had a king, they were being led by judges or just leaders who would come from time to time. But they wanted to be like other nations. And so they called out to their leader, Samuel, who's a prophet. They said, we want a king. We want to be like these other nations. We don't want to just have, have judges, random people leading us. We want a king on a throne. And so God basically kind of relented and said, okay, fine. We will let you have a king. And so Saul was anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 9, and this is what we read about him. He was an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than all the others. So it started off really well with this wonderful description of this leader, but it was a failed experiment almost from the start. There are a couple of chapters where Saul seems to be doing good as a king, but he starts to falter almost right away. By chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And so when we come to the beginning of this morning's reading in 2 Samuel chapter 21, we hear once again of the name of Saul. So again, just to recap, during the reign of David, who succeeded Saul as king, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, having famine for three consecutive years is hard for us to get our heads around. I mean, it, with modern agricultural techniques, that just wouldn't happen, like at least in this part of the world. We're able to use irrigation systems and things, but at that point in history, they, they didn't have the technology, and rather than maybe asking the questions about what technology could we use to get around this, they would ask, what is the reason for this? Why is this happening? This isn't happening because we haven't invented something, because that never crossed their mind. The re what entered their mind was, we have done something wrong. Someone has offended God, and that is why we have now had famine for three years in a row. Now, the Bible doesn't record the details of what Saul did to the Gibeonites, but we know that what he did broke a vow that had been pledged 400 years prior. And for that, we go to the book of Joshua, chapter 8. So at this point in time, Moses had led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. They were just crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and Joshua was leading the nation of Israel. And they were kind of, they were attacking one clan after the next, going from place to place, expanding their territory. Well, when this was happening, the people of Gibeon made themselves, uh, they, had, they hatched themselves a plan. So what they did was they got the rattiest clothes they had, the most worn out sandals they had, and they, put, they dressed in all these clothes. And then they got the, the worst food, like the food that was already spoiled, ready to go out to the compost. They got the moldiest bread they could find, and they packed it in their bags. And then they walked a short distance to where Israel was camped. And they walked up to the leaders, and they said, we've traveled a long, far distance from a far, far away land. We've heard about how great you are. We were going to bring you all this wonderful food, but it took us so long to get here that, look, all our bread is moldy. We just wanted to be friends with you and make a peace treaty. And so the leaders are like, oh, they live far away. We can have peace with them. That'll be fine. So they make peace with them. But meanwhile, they were their neighbors. They were a nation that they would have wanted to conquer and take their land. But they made this vow. Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. 
Now, this was a point in world history when oaths mattered, when treaties mattered, when promises mattered. And so we read in Numbers chapter 30, just to give a sense of what this was like, Moses said to the heads of the tribe of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. And so the Gibeonites were aware of this. They understood that this is the way they worked, and so they, they kind of hooked them into this pledge. Well, for 400 years, this treaty with the Gibeonites was honored until Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, tried to annihilate them. We live in a nation where treaties made by our ancestors were often violated or altogether abandoned because of their zeal for the Canadian dream. And we continue to hear calls, and we continue to call out ourselves for truth and reconciliation. This has been a long-standing problem with the human race. When David realized that Saul's actions were the cause of the famine, he sought a resolution. He uses a word that, if you've been around church for a little bit, you probably have heard in reference to Jesus. The word is atonement. He says, what can I do to make atonement for this situation? What can I do to remove the sin and the defilement of this broken treaty? What can I do to, to offer a substitute, to pay some kind of a ransom, pay you back for this wrong that's been done to you? There's got to be something that we can do. Now, whether the Gibeonites knew the Israelites' law or whether they had the same kind of ethical code, I'm not exactly sure, but the Gibeonites appealed to the same kind of life-for-life principle that we read about in Numbers 35. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. They are to be put to death. And so in the Old Testament, this is the way things were done. If someone committed murder, they would be put to death. And so the law was saying, listen, if someone has been murdered, you can't say, well, give me like a bag of gold and we'll call it even. They're like, no, no, no. Money does not equal life. That's not how it works. It's a life for a life. For the Gibeonites, this wasn't about material gain. It was about honor. It was about justice. But there was a problem. Saul, the perpetrator of these crimes, had already died in battle. So how do you do a life for a life when the person who did the killing is already dead? In the ancient Near East, a family was considered a single unit, so the crimes of one family member could result in the punishment of another. And so David had a tough decision to make. He had to offer up members of Saul's family to appease the Gibeonites and make right Saul's wrong. David's friend Jonathan's son Mephibosheth is mentioned in this passage, one of the many difficult names that Helen pronounced for us. And we're going to talk about Mephibosheth in this incredible story next month. But instead of handing over Mephibosheth, his friend's son, David hands over seven other descendants of Saul, including five of Saul's grandsons, and two of his sons who were born to a woman named Rizpah, and all seven of them were executed. Now, perhaps from time to time you find yourself in a social setting and the conversation falls into a lull. Maybe it's new people, or maybe it's your coworkers or your extended family, and, and the conversation kind of dies, and everyone's quiet, and it's awkward, and you wonder, what should I talk about? How can I get this conversation going? Well, I'm going to teach you something this morning that is a guaranteed fix for a lull in conversation. Tell a story about roadkill. I'm serious. You try this out. If you tell a story about roadkill, like, for example, a couple weeks ago, Melissa ran over a raccoon. And it, not just any raccoon, this was the alpha raccoon of Laurel Creek. It was big. 
and she hit it, and it did damage to our vehicle. So if I start telling you this story, you would tell me a story about a time when you hit a bird. And then the next person would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember one time I was flying, and, and there was like a squirrel, and it kind of came across, flying in front of the car, and, and everyone will go around. And once everyone has had a turn talking about an animal that they had hit, they, we, they upped the ante. And they said, but my aunt one time, and then they tell this crazy story of how their aunt hit a moose. And the moose went right over the vehicle and landed in the trunk or something like that. And then everyone goes around like that. It's, it's wonderful. Anyways, lull in a conversation, tell a story about roadkill. So Melissa hit this raccoon a couple weeks ago, and I was looking for a picture uh, to illustrate this point, and then I found this even better picture. Um, so this is like a few years ago in Toronto. It's a, a Twitter picture someone sent out. It says, there's a dead raccoon on the sidewalk outside 819 Young Street, and there's a picture of this dead raccoon, which is a little weird in this city. I mean, if you live around Laurel Creek, it's not a big deal. They're there all the time. But this is a big deal. So they called like the animal control people, and they said, raccoon in the city. And they got a response back right away. Okay, we'll come and take care of it. But they didn't come and take care of it right away. Halfway through the day, people had set up a vigil for the dead raccoon. A little photo, flowers, cards. They set up a hashtag, dead raccoon TO. People are signing their names, leaving condolences. And you'd think that when this started appearing on Twitter, the animal control people would get there quickly. They didn't. It wasn't until later at night, and by that time you can see there's a candlelight vigil has now been added for this dead raccoon at the side of the road. It reminded me of this story that Stuart McLean told in the Vinyl Cafe. There's this episode where uh, David Morley's daughter, Stephanie, uh, has this boyfriend, and he's an artist, so they invite him to his art exhibit. Um, but the art that he does is he takes photographs of roadkill. And so Dave shows up in this art gallery, and there's like all these pictures of roadkill at the side of the road, and he's like, this is ridiculous. Like, this can't be art. Um, and then he goes on to explain his, uh, the rest of the story, and I'll do my best uh, Stuart McLean impression in honor of him this morning. Dave's father, Charlie, would pull his truck to the side of the road whenever he came across something that had been run over. <laughs> then he'd carry whatever it was into the bushes. Charlie told Dave that they shouldn't let dead animals lie there in the road where they'd get run over again and again. There's no dignity in that, said Charlie. Back then, it was embarrassing. Now, it seemed to make sense. Okay, anyways, there you go. There's no dignity in letting an animal just lie there at the side of a road. No one wants to see a dead raccoon lying on a sidewalk in Toronto, and no one wants to see a human body lying anywhere for even a moment, let alone all day. The Norwegian author, Karl Urve Knosgaard, he has this epic six-volume memoir called My Struggle, and it begins the very first episode with this description of how averse humans are to seeing dead bodies. He talks about, like, if you ever come across a scene of a crime or an accident, the body is covered by a sheet. We don't want to see that. He said, and what do we do with a body when someone does die? We bring it to the morgue, which is in the basement of the hospital. You can't possibly accidentally walk by there. And then we put it in a box, and we all come to pay honor to the person, but the person is, is in a coffin. And he talks about this fact that like, we're afraid to look death in the eye. There's something about us that has this aversion. Now I know what some of you are thinking. This has to be the most morbid and disturbing sermon I've ever heard. I'll do my best to redeem it. Is he following the execution of Saul's descendants? 
Their bodies were put on display. This is gruesome for us to imagine, but this is what they did. They didn't only ask for the execution of his descendants, but they wanted to publicly humiliate them and their, his entire family by hanging their lifeless bodies up for passers-by to see. This is a practice that was common in the ancient world, and it's actually found its way down until really as late as a couple hundred years ago. The practice was intended to be humiliating, to remove the dignity that Dave's father wanted even raccoons to have, and to serve as a serious warning. That's what happens when you break a vow. That's what happens when you mess with our clan. No one wants to see a dead body on display, especially a mother. Rispa, daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. Now this morning's story is really summarized in one short, shocking, and heart-wrenching verse of a mother spreading out cloth on a stone mountainside to watch guard over her, ch her children's dead bodies. But who is this Rispa? Quick show of hands, just be honest with me. If you have never heard of Rispa before, hands in the air. Yeah, okay, so like most people here, like hardly anyone has heard of this woman. Rispa was the concubine of King Saul. A royal concubine was married to the king because he loved or desired her and was typically outstanding in beauty or intelligence. This is compared and contrasted with a full wife who would usually be married to symbolize some kind of a political alliance between two kingdoms or two states or two families. An actual wife had a higher status than a concubine, but she wasn't chosen. And so we can assume about Rispa that she was loved by King Saul. And we know that she bore him at least two sons before his untimely death. Now when Saul died, his son Ashibethesh took over the throne from his father. But when rumors started swirling that the commander of Saul's army, who is now the commander of Ephibosheth's army, had slept with Rispa, the king's widow, which the commander denied, it was interpreted as a way of laying claim to the throne. So the commander now is trying to take over from the new king. The incident led to a conflict between the king and the commander, and eventually to the downfall of Ishbosheth and the rise of, king, of David as a king of the reunited kingdom of Israel. But the next time we come across Rizba, her son's lifeless bodies are hanging on display. I read this thing in the news, and these stories get me all the time this week. Couple who has been married for 71 years died within hours of each other. 71 years of marriage, one of them passes away, and later that afternoon, the other passes away. Like, that's how a life should end. You live a long, full, happy life with the people you love, and you peacefully come to an end. Life shouldn't come to an end young. No mother should ever have to watch their child pass away before them. Overcome with grief, Rispa did the only thing there was to do. She couldn't do anything to intervene. There's nothing she could do to prevent the death of her sons. So she took sackcloth, we're told, a coarse garment that was, or a coarse fabric that was used to symbolize mourning. 
And she spread it out herself on a rock. And she kept vigil over the decaying bodies. Now, this last week at VBS, uh, as you heard the different themes, one of the days that we were talking about was about when life is sad. We were talking about the fact that sometimes we're going to be sad. Sometimes these things happen. And I sat in on the story time session down in the chapel, and Susan Fish was telling this story about Lazarus and how when Lazarus passed away, um, his sisters and family and friends and Jesus gathered to mourn. And she was talking about how the, this tradition of the time would have been that you would mourn for seven days. So they would sit outside of that, of that tomb, and they would cry, and they would weep, and they would sing, and they would comfort each other in this season of mourning for a week. Now, for us, that seems like a long time. I don't think any of us could imagine just being in a state of mourning for seven straight days without any break. That would be incredible. Rispa did this for a lot longer than seven days. The Bible tells us it was from the beginning of the harvest till the rains came, which would have been from April until October. Do the math, six months she spent watching vigil over her son's bodies. That's profound dedication. You know, as I was thinking about this story, I thought about just the isolation that she would have experienced, but I realized, no, you can't stay out on a rock for six months without people coming along and helping you. People must have come to, to spell her off when she needed to sleep. People must have come alongside her and, and brought her some food to eat along the way. There must have been community that gathered around her in our grief. And I thought about how so many times we find it difficult to do that when someone in our lives experiences loss or grief. We don't know what to say. We think, well, maybe I should just leave them alone or, or maybe I'll say the wrong thing, so I better not say anything. And I was reminded of how important it is for us to just say something. As the passage in Romans says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. We need to find a way to be present with people who are in a season of mourning and loss. So she was mourning and grieving, but she was also active. We're told that she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. And there's this uh, picture on the next slide, I think, John, um, where we see this this active kind of militant woman standing up, kind of beating off these birds of prey. And the next slide will be hard to see because it's really fuzzy, um, but just the, like the look of determination on her face is just like I'm, I'm doing everything I can to protect the ones that I've lost. Now, any decent parent is protective of their child. Actually, while I was writing this on Friday, I got a phone call in our office from someone who lives in another city, and they just got our phone number, and, and it was a mother who was distraught because of something that her son is going through, and she just wanted to talk to someone and get a referral to a counselor or something to help her out. And I was thinking, like, yes, every parent wants what's best for their kid. Now, sometimes we're too protective. Sometimes we can do, be too protective. Pain and suffering should never be avoided at all costs. Sometimes as parents, we can make that mistake. We can think that the best thing for our children is for them to never experience pain, for them to never experience suffering or loss. But I don't think that's true. But looking out for the people we love is an honorable thing to do. A British rabbi, Jonathan Maganet, describes Rispa as every mother who sees her sons killed before their time. All that remains is for her to preserve the dignity of their memory and live on to bear witness and call to account the rulers of the world. When there's nothing left for us to do, there is still something left for us to do. 
Rispa couldn't protect her sons, but she was committed to honoring their memory. The 15th century reformer Martin Luther once wrote a letter to a man, he was a doctor, and his son had just passed away, his son had fallen from the roof of their house. And he writes this letter to him, and there's this, there's this beautiful line from it. He says, therefore, loving doctor, while you do well to mourn and lament the death of your son, let not your grief exceed the measure of a Christian in refusing to be comforted. He understands, he's trying to express this balance, like grief and mourning and loss and lament is all part of the human experience. Do it all. Embrace it all. But don't refuse to be comforted. Because even on the other side of the worst losses of all, there is the potential for, for hope. There is the potential for comfort. Christian faith doesn't promise a life free of suffering because suffering is at its core. Suffering is at the core of this faith. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 10 says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus he's talking about. Jesus wasn't made perfect because he'd never experienced loss. And we just heard about the story. His friend Lazarus died. He wept. I mean, he experienced loss. He experienced pain. And then he ultimately faced a fate somewhat similar to Rispa's sons. Executed. Left to hang out in public. So at the center and the core of our faith is, is loss and pain and suffering Contemporary author Samir Samanovich writes, I have come to believe that the cross is unique not only because it is local and historical, so not only because, like, this actually happened in history, wow, but also because it's a window into something cosmic and universal. God experiences death with every injustice, oppression, and suffering. God can comfort us in our loss because God has experienced loss. Because we know that even the suffering of the cross was not the end of the story, our faith compels us to look beyond Rizpah's six-month grief-induced vigil. In 2 Samuel 21, 11 to 12, when David was told what Aya's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. You see, while Rispa kept vigil over the bodies of her own children, David was reminded of his responsibility to do the same. But in this case, it wasn't his children. It was his enemy. His enemy, Saul, the king, who had tried to kill him on multiple occasions. Saul died in battle. Now, his body we learn about at the end of 1 Samuel. The Philistines captured him. They took the dead body, and along with Jonathan, they, they mounted in a similar way the Gibeonites did. They mounted their dead bodies on a wall of the main street of their city for everyone to see. This is what happens if you mess with the Philistines. Now, some brave Israelites snuck in one night, and they took the bodies down, and they burned them ceremoniously and buried the bones. But David had nothing to do with that. He was the king. And he did nothing to honor the nation's former leader, even though he was his enemy. And so David is conscience-stricken to follow Rispa's example. It's as if he's thinking, this woman has acted with such honor. Shouldn't I, as the king, do the same thing? Stuart McLean says you can find beauty in the most unexpected places. 
in sorrow as well as in happiness, in death as well as in life. And so the story that we heard read this morning ends this way. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father. After that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. It's interesting. David had neglected to do something. And here we have this inspiring act of devotion. As kings were busy doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, a grief-stricken woman inspired the very action that would save Israel from famine. I'd like to invite you to stand this morning. This is a somber story, there's no doubt about it. And maybe this is one of the reasons why it's ignored. Maybe this is one of the reasons we don't talk about a story like this, because it's somber, because it's difficult, because it brings up emotions and stories that are, that are challenging for us. But I think that in the same way that David observed this woman's devotion and faithfulness, and that inspired him to carry that with him, I think that the story can do the same kind of thing for us. When we look at someone who lost everything that mattered to her, and how she continued to act with devotion, we can ask ourselves questions. What can we do? Is there some amends that we need to make with someone? Is there some kind of peace we need to restore? Is there some kind of action we need to take in our own lives? Lord, we're grateful that you speak to us through this scripture, and not just the comfortable ones, and not just the familiar ones, and not just the ones we commit to memory, but the random ones, because these stories are all part of your story, of a broken world, just steeped in sin and death and loss and pain and suffering, but also surrounded and wrapped in beauty and hope and honor and dignity. And I pray, God, this morning that as we reflect on the story of Rispa's vigil, that we would be inspired in our own ways to be honorable, to be loving, to be peace-seeking people, and that we would remember that you are a God who knows suffering and loss, and that rather than turn away from it, turn away from you in the midst of it, that we would turn toward you in the midst of it and believe that you can bring comfort and you can bring hope and you can bring light. Lord, as we break into discussion groups, as we head off to discuss this amongst ourselves, and even as some of us will just head out of this place into the week, I pray that you would not allow the heaviness of this story to weigh on us, but you would remind us of the hopefulness in it, that even out of the, even out of the darkness can come light, that even, even out of death can come life. That's the central story of our faith. So help us to leave this place with that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So this morning, we've got some talking to do. We've got about 20, 25 minutes, uh, so I'd encourage you to make your way into the gym and dive into some conversation. I've written some questions about this morning's theme. If you haven't been here before, this is what we do. Last half hour of our time together every week, we'll formally wrap up at 12.30. But I'd encourage you to dive into some good conversation about this story. Thank you. are so blue, I feel like I could look right through and see the stars and the moon take flight, and I wake from my stare from who knows where, and 
know you've been thinking of me Yet wonder and fear you knit me together You shut up and scared and you breathe and tell me I have a feeling you knew 